Well, good morning, Bridge City, Murraysville. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning. Would you stand to your feet as we begin our worship experience? This morning, we're believing for freedom in this place. Amen? Freedom in this place because the Lord is here and he's at work. So let's sing to him with all that we have this morning. Here we go. You call. You call us all from the depths into your freedom. Our chains are gone. No weapon shall prevail. Your word is stronger. We overcome. Amen.
you conquer death forever in victory you reign we triumph in your name our god a mighty warrior you're a consuming fire in victory yeah. we triumph we triumph he's just the great commander you conquer death I don't know the battles that you're going through, but I know that we fight from a place of victory. We're not fighting for victory because we have Jesus in us. So let's sing about that this morning. This weapon may be formed, but it won't prosper. When the darkness falls, it won't prevail. God I serve knows only how to triumph. Take what the enemy meant 
There's a table that you prepared for me 
that you have good things in store. So God, I just pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive what you have for us this morning with the word. We thank you and we praise you. This is all for you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated and let's get ready to hear the message.
Good morning. Bridge City Church, Murraysville. How are you doing this morning? Some of you are like, wow, Pastor Rick really looks good. Man, or some of you are like, man, Pastor Eric really let himself slide. I am neither Pastor Eric nor Pastor Rick. I am Pastor John of our North Braddock location. Not to be confused with North Braddock, because when you spell it phonetically, you just do not want to see those words in print. And not to be confused with the North Braddock Church. You know, a lot of times we get together for all church events, and they're like, oh, yeah, you, you go to the North Braddock Church. They say, no, 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 no. I go to Bridge City Church. I just happen to go to the North Braddock location because we are one church in four locations. And this Sunday is our campus pastor exchange program. So right now, Pastor Eric is in White Oak, I believe. Um, Elder Matt Klingensmith from our White Oak campus, he's at North Braddock right now. And I believe Doug Shear, one of our elder apprentices, is bringing the word at our Brighton Heights location because Pastor Rick is getting a much-needed and well-deserved time away from all of you people. (laughs) Actually, he's getting away from me. I'll just be honest. Um, But he's getting some time away. Pastor Gary is currently, I believe, in Kenya, if I'm not mistaken, working with a ministry that our church partners with called Global Roar, which is an initiative that's connected to the network of related pastors, which is the network of churches that we um, are involved with. And and this this ministry uh, goes into regions all around uh, the world to train pastors. And so I actually get the opportunity to travel with him in April to go to Mongolia, which is is 3% Christian, which classifies it as an unreached people. But even more than that, training pastors who will then go, if you can think of Mongolia on a map, Mongolia is, is nestled strategically right above China and right next to North Korea. I can't think of two better places on planet Earth that need the gospel right now more than China and North Korea. And so I'm really excited about that. But that's where our, our lead pastor and our Brighton Heights campus pastor. So you're stuck with me here today. And I'm excited to be here with you because you know what? This is kind of a homecoming for me. Some of you might not know this, but my wife, Christine, and I, we actually became members of Bridge City Church while being a part of the Murraysville campus. So back in 2019, uh, my wife and I transitioned out of about a decade of church planting ministry Uh, The Lord was calling us out, and to be quite honest with you, it was great. We needed some much-needed rest and healing and refreshing, and I couldn't think of a better place to get rest and healing and refreshing than than a than other than sitting under what really had become my spiritual dad without knowing it, Pastor Rick. And so we, we jumped right in with Bridge City Church, jumped right in here at Murraysville, and then this crazy thing you might have heard of happened called COVID. You heard of this? Yeah, mask mandates, vaccines. If, if you, did, you can Google it. Just be careful because they'll put you on a watch list. Um, <laughs> but during that time, Pastor Rick and Natalie approached uh, my wife, Christine, and I um, to pray about stepping in as campus pastors at our North Braddock location because the uh, current campus pastor there, Pastor Dan Perkins, he was in a season of transition. 
And so we prayed, and um, as much as we loved being here, we knew that this was God. And so we said yes and amen, and we dove in. And so we have been there ever since. And you know what? This is my first time back at Murraysville on a Sunday. And that's exciting to me, but I don't know if I should feel some kind of way about that. I miss you guys. And so for those of you, man, I love you. I'm good to see so many faces. For those of you who don't know me, that's exciting to me because that means that somewhere in the last three years, you found your way here. And can I tell you something? You are in a great place. The sign in all of our locations that says, welcome home, isn't just a slogan. We mean it. And so we're glad that you're here. And if this is your first time worshiping with, with Bridge City Church at any of our locations, I just personally want to welcome you and say thank you for spending some of your Sunday morning with us. And I hope that you do find that statement to be true, that you have found a home where you are welcome here at Bridge City Church. So I'm excited, but you know what? I didn't come here to do promos. and get, I came here today to bring the Word of God. And so I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, and this morning, um, I, I have a message that's kind of a question, because I, I want to challenge us this morning, and so the title of today's message is this, what's keeping you from following Jesus? What is keeping you from following Jesus? Because no matter who you are, or how long you've Follow Jesus or known Jesus, there is something, there is always something, whether it's big or small, that is keeping us from follow, fully following Him. There's always something that's there. And the reason that I know this, there's two things that indicate to me that both individually and corporately, we're not where we should be following Jesus. So whether you're here today and your relationship status with Jesus is stranger, that's a relationship status. You don't know him. You've heard of him, but you've never met him. You've never met him in a way that's transformative. Maybe you've never met him in a way that's real, that's face-to-face. He's, he's an idea or, or, or a thought or a concept to you. And my hope for you is today you make that relationship real. But whether you're a stranger or whether you're longtime friends, all of us have something in our lives, big or small, that need to go away, that need to be removed in order for us to follow Jesus better because this is something that I've discovered. Very rarely is it something that we have to add. Very rarely is it something that we have to add. And I know uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, I feel Pastor Gavin's eyes on me right now. 2 Peter chapter 1 talks about add to your faith this and that and those. But, but the reality of it is this. I have seen in people's lives the issue, the struggle with them following Jesus as closely as they ought to, as closely as God desires them to be, is very rarely things that needed to be, need to be added to their walk, but actually things that need to be removed. And, and, and I believe that, that none of us are there individually or corporately because here, here's the thing. First and foremost, we are not fully unified in him. What does that mean? Well, in John chapter 17, right before Jesus gets betrayed and crucified and that whole deal, Jesus prays a prayer. Your Bible probably calls it the high priestly prayer of Jesus. I actually call this the Lord's Prayer. And what, what we typically call the Lord's Prayer can't be the Lord's Prayer, at least as far as I'm concerned. You know why? Because there's, there's, there's a, an, a request for forgiveness from sins, and Jesus had no sin. So how could it be his prayer? But I believe this John 17 prayer is Jesus' prayer. It's the Lord's prayer. And the focus of his prayer is this. I'll sum it up for you. It's one whole chapter. I'll, I'll, it's 
that they might be one. Jesus is praying to the Father as you and I are one. I in them, corporately and individually, they in me and, and us in you. And so there is a reality that Christ's church, the global church, not bridge, city church, not a denominational thing, not this, that, or the third, but everyone who follows Jesus is to be unified in him in such a way that we are one with him. And in being one with him, here's the second reality. We're to look like him. Now, I don't know about you, but, but, but I haven't recently walked down the street and had my shadow heal anyone yet. The last time I was uh, in a hospital, people didn't get out of their beds. I, I've done two funeral services in the past two weeks, and none of those people rose from the dead. And so that is an indicator to me that I'm not where I should be with Jesus. See, because the world would like you to dumb down your Christianity to make you think that the special parts of the Bible were just for then or they're a nice make-believe, but they are for now, and they should be something that we should expect to see in our lives. And if we're not seeing them in our lives, it means one of two things. Either Jesus isn't in the miracle working business anymore, or there's something wrong with us. And I can, spoiler alert, it's not wrong with him. And so what is in our lives, what's keeping us from full, fully following Jesus so that we are one in him and so that we truly look like him and do the things that Jesus did. Jesus told his disciple Philip in John chapter 14 that greater things than these you will do. Greater things than these you will do. And we just came out of a series called They Will Know We Are Christians by Our Love. And last week at our North Braddock location, I made the bold statement to think that, you know what, some of the greater things, it isn't just the healing of the sick and the raising of the dead. It's loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. And even if you're not into the whole miracle deal, I can guarantee you this, you are not loving your neighbor as Jesus would love them. And so that's not an indictment. That's just to say, hey, we got some work to do. Because it means that there's something that's keeping me from following him in a way that allows me to look and act and be and talk like him and to be one with him and one with my brothers and sisters as he and the Father are one. And so my hope today is this, is that we're going to look at this passage of Scripture and see not just the dangers, right? Do you have any business people here? Any business people, entrepreneurs? I, I worked for a very entrepreneurial man while I was in Bible college, and um, he, uh, he sold uh, medical parts for um, uh, infants, for NICUs in the Philadelphia area. And I noticed one day as I'm filling out the invoices and, you know, getting them ready to go to the hospitals, I noticed that, that, that certain hospitals would order the same thing in the same quantity, but one was paying more than the other. And I was like, well, is this correct? And he was, like, he was like, well, that's what they've budgeted. And I'm like, well, why don't you cut them a deal? And this is what he said. He said, because you never leave money on the table. And there's a lot of spiritual money that we leave on the table by not eradicating things that are keeping us from following Jesus more closely. And if you just want to do 21st century westernized Christianity where church attendance means you follow Jesus, reading your Bible means you follow Jesus, praying here and there, serving once a month or whatever, then kudos to you. That's great. But I personally believe that there's more because there's greater things yet to come. And I'm not going to be the hindrance that keeps them from happening.
So Mark chapter 10, I'm going to be reading through verses 17 through 22. I'm going to kind of make my way through the text, and I want to leave you with some points and then get out of your way. All right, so Mark chapter 10, I'm going to start here at verse 17, and this, this, is, this is what is commonly referred to as the interaction with the rich young ruler. And I want, to, I want to give you a caution here. Names are important in the Bible. So when somebody uh, is named this way, what it's telling you is that they are more known for this thing than for what their mama named him. So he's rich, he's young, and he's a man of influence and authority. He's the kind of guy that if we were to read beyond what we're going to read this morning, and I encourage you to do that in Mark chapter 10, he's the kind of guy that, that Jesus' disciples wanted on Jesus' team. You know why? Because he's got money, he's got energy because he's young, and he's got influence. And they're like, Jesus, he could really make this whole deal a lot easier. But how many of you know that Jesus does not want your money, your vitality, or your earthly influence to make your life easier in advancing the kingdom? He wants to make his power in you the reason why things are easy in advancing the kingdom. So Mark chapter 10, verse 17, and as he was setting out on his journey, this is Jesus, as he's setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher... What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there's a lot of things wrong with this question. I'm going to touch on a few of them, and maybe you saw them. But one of the things that is most fascinating and the most frustrating about this question is the reality that there is nothing you can do short of killing someone to inherit anything. Right? You, you, you receive an inheritance because a close relation, a family member dies and bequeaths something to you apart from your own self-effort. I saw something on social media that the vast majority of, of murders, you are more likely to be murdered by your spouse than anyone else. So check your life insurance and... If you haven't registered for our EXO Marriage Conference, it's happening March 11th, that's Saturday. $20 per person, $40 per couple. I suggest you take the couple rate, and if you don't, if you miss it, if you don't do it today, it goes up $25, and it's still a deal at $25 per person, but hopefully both of you can show up at this. I'm just saying that. But nevertheless, knowing that, see, You can't do anything to get an inheritance. And so this guy comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do? And that's part of the problem with the believer. We think it's about us doing something to get what he freely gives. It does not rest on your effort. It rests on his. And if he said it's finished, it's finished. And so we have to understand something here as we look at things that keep us from following Jesus, that salvation is a free gift. And there are two types of people in the world. There are people that get hung up on the do's and don'ts of the Bible, and they rightly say, why would I exchange my bondage of sin, the control that addiction or porn or anger or rage or greed holds on my life, why would I exchange that bondage for the bondage of a bunch of do's and don'ts that I can't meet up no matter how hard I try? You're right for saying that. 
Or we got people that get saved by the free gift, but then they somehow think that it was about something they did and not what Jesus did. And you know what that produces in your life? Neurotic anxiety. Because you live your life wondering if you're measuring up. And if I just do a little more, if I just do a little more, if I just do a little more, that is not the life that God has called us to. He says, good teacher. See, it's not about doing something to get something. It's about getting something and then doing something with what you got. That's the goal. He has given us, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says, he has blessed us, past tense, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, in the locative sphere where those blessings are means that there are some earthly things that need to get out of the way so that we can receive and operate and utilize the heavenly blessings that he has for us. See, Jesus wants you. He does not want your deeds. And here's the thing. When Jesus gets you, the deeds follow. It's a consequence of being in Christ. It is not about what you do to inherit. See, we receive inheritance through a familial relationship via the death of that person. And this is one of the reasons why I believe Jesus died and rose again. Because in dying, he gave the inheritance, everything that is his, the same thing that he receives as the son of God. The Bible clearly illustrates belongs to those who put their faith and hope and trust in him. And then he rose again because he wants to share in it with us. And by receiving him, we become sons. God calls everyone his children, but not all of his children call him dad. And Jesus became the firstborn among many brethren so that we could go to the father unashamed, without the veil, and interact through pure, perfect relationship with him. This is why he flipped the tables over. You remember that? John chapter 2. John's gospel moves it to the beginning of the story, even though it's right at the tail end. Because trust me, Jesus would have did that at the beginning of his ministry. They'd have killed him a lot sooner. But Jesus goes into the temple and he begins to flip over the, 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 the money changers tables and get the animals loose. Why? Because he says, he says, you have made my father's house a house of merchandise. A better translation there would be a house of exchange. And the westernized Christian ideology has made Christianity, our interaction with God, about exchange and not about relationship. My kids don't have to beg me for nothing. They may have to ask me for once, and I'm glad to give it to them. But they don't have to beg me for anything. But see, when we make our relationship with Jesus about exchange, do you know what it does? It makes it now bargaining with God. Anybody ever bargained with God before I got saved? Every time I'd get ready to go to jail, and I've been to jail more times than you probably want to know. All right, God, if you do this, I'll do this. How many, how many of you do that in your Christian life right now? God, if you just heal grandma, I'll never 
watch that show on Netflix again. See, not only is that a bad way to view relationship with God, but here's, here's the reality. Having an idea of exchange in our relationship with God, because here's, here's, here's the true reality of exchange and bargaining. A bargain, by definition, is getting the most you can get with the least you have to give up. And that's what we do with God. I want to get as much as I can by giving up as little as I have to. And that's not what Jesus wants. He wants to have relationship with us. But this rich young ruler, chances are he became rich because he was an entrepreneur. He, was a, he understood that money was a means to an end, but not the end itself. But as we see, we're going to find out that money was more important to him than anything else. So verse 18, Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? Have you ever noticed when you read the Gospels, anytime, more often than not, Jesus is asked a question, he responds with a question. And usually his response has nothing to do with the actual question that was just asked. Have you ever marveled at how God responds to some of your deepest questions? Has it ever occurred to you that God marvels at some of the questions that you ask? John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Jesus said, if you knew who was asking, you would ask him. And he would give you living water that would spring up into a well, into eternal life. So Jesus says, why do you call me good? See, and Jesus is intentionally pushing this man to a point of philosophical comprehension. He wants this guy to get something. More often than not, Jesus wants you to figure it out without giving you a cheat sheet on the test. Because when you figure it out on your own, it belongs to you. If someone gives you a degree, deep down inside, you know you didn't earn it. But when you go to college, pay all that money, put in all those hours, study all those tests, learn all those vocabulary words, you are excited. And if you never use that piece of paper in your life, no one can ever take that piece of paper away from you because you pushed yourself to discover it and attain it on your own. And that's not about doing. Jesus is wanting to push this man deeper into relationship because notice the question that he asks: Why do you call me good? Only God is good. He says no one is good except God alone. And what he's doing, like I think he does with most of us more often than we'd like to admit, he's like, um, hint, hint, wink, wink. Am I good or am I God? Because not everything that's good is God, but God is always good. And see, what this man did not need was a good teacher. He needed God because only God can give eternal life. He says, are you asking me because I'm a teacher or because you see me as these other followers of mine see me as Lord of all? See, and many people come to Jesus in this manner looking for answers, looking for breakthrough, looking for blessings, but never looking for him. It's what I like to say, looking for the hand of God, but not the face of God. And what do I need the hand of the king when I have the face of the king? 
and the ear of the king and the heart of the king. See, Jesus wants to pull this man deeper into relationship with him because this man came for information and affirmation, but he did not come for transformation. Jesus will give you the, the, the former, but his aim is the latter. Many times we come to Jesus seeking our needs and our wants instead of seeking his face and his presence. This man wanted answers. Jesus wanted relationship. And that's what he's looking for from all of us. Jesus goes on in verse 19. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your mother and father. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, Loved him. Jesus looking at him, loved him. I want you to catch that because we're going to talk about that here in a minute. But before this guy ever did the thing that Jesus wanted him to do, Jesus loved him. And maybe you're sitting here today and your entire life has been geared towards doing everything opposite of what God wants you to do. Can I encourage you today? He still looks at you with love. He still looks at you with love. Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come follow me. That sounds like more than one thing. We're gonna talk about that here in a minute. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, this man went away sorrowful because he had great, possessions. Now, I want to clear something up just in case this has, you've heard this or you've got this in your mind. Jesus is not condemning wealth. He's not. He's addressing faulty priority. Some of us struggle to tithe and give above the tithe and live sacrificially and generously because we have faulty priorities. It's not because we don't love God. It's because we haven't prioritized his face over our stuff. And you got to remember that Jesus's aim is always relationship. His aim is always relationship. And he will target anything in your life that interrupts or otherwise stands in the way. That relationship that you just really want to have, if it's not of him, he will target it and he will obliterate it or obliterate you in the process. Not because he's aiming at you, but because he's aiming at relationship. But if you're so married to the thing that is keeping you from him, you might get hurt in the process. That's why we encourage people to live a life of open-handedness. Whatever I have is yours, God. If there's anything in me, David prayed it this way in Psalm 139. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in paths eternal. Lead me in eternal life. The thing that this man wanted so much was only being held back from him, not because God is stingy, but because this man was, and he loved his stuff more than he loved Jesus. 
Because here's the thing that I've noticed, and I've, I've, I've spent the majority of my Christian life ministering to the poor, the very poor in, in this country, which is still top 8% of wealth in the rest of the world. So when you hear about our turkey offerings and global roar and stuff like that, keep that in, in mind. And I have, ne- I have never seen people love more money than poor people love money. Because they think that if they have it, they'll be complete. Because I've met rich people, very rich people, who have all the money and all the stuff and all the influence that they could have, but because they don't have Jesus, they still feel incomplete. And that's why this man came to Jesus. Because of his richness and his youthful vitality and his earthly influence satisfied him, he wouldn't have been looking for anything else. So what's keeping this man from following Jesus? There's three things. Three things that I want to talk about here in the next couple of minutes. And maybe one of these things is what's keeping you from following him more closely. The first thing is that this man valued the rules over the ruler. He valued the rules over the ruler. He valued the do's and the don'ts over the lawgiver. See, This man thought that by keeping the law, in other words, by being a good person, by being self-righteous, that word literally means you find your righteousness in yourself. So you might be a lawbreaker according to the law of God, but you still find something in yourself or in your own behavior that makes you righteous. And that's not enough. But even keeping the whole law wasn't enough. You know why I know that? Because there was another young, wealthy, influential guy who in Philippians chapter three says, according to the law, I was blameless. Paul kept the whole law. It doesn't mean that he didn't sin, but in the law, there were prescriptions for what you did if you sinned. But Paul kept the law perfectly and it still was not enough to satisfy him. That's when, when Jesus knocked him on his rear end on the road to Damascus, something changed in Paul because he saw the perfect completion of the law and it wasn't in him. It was in the eyes that burned like flames of fire that say, come to me. I will fulfill the law for you. Trust in me. See, the reason why we love the rules is because we like to keep score. Mm-hmm. See, see, I'm not even going to come at the rule breakers in the room. I'd, I'd be surprised if there weren't some people that are violating God's laws in their mind right now and happy with it and don't care and going to do it again. But I want to come at all you good rule-keeping Christians. And I'm not against keeping rules. But if you're keeping rules for the sake of keeping score, you're doing it for the wrong reason. That's why we love it. Because we like to look at the checklist every day to see how good we did, don't we? But see, here's here's the reason why the law, why the rules can't give you life. Because either you're gonna look at it and say, man, I did really good today. I'm going to pat myself on the back. God gets no glory, and you know what's likely to happen? You're likely to think you're good enough, and you don't have to do anything else because I'm better than that other guy. Or, and this is what I see happen more often than not, this is what we saw happen in the apostle Paul's life. He said, the things that I should do, I don't do. 
And I try and I try. I try to not get high. I try to not look at that thing. I try to not do that stuff. I try to not do that, but I just keep failing. And it has the same result. You end up just saying, why try? That's why Jesus fulfilled the law for us. And he says, come to me. Because here's the thing. When you come to Christ and you truly understand that all of the law has been kept for you in him, and you are forgiven of every sin, past, present, and future, and you begin to realize what 2 Corinthians 5 says, you are now the righteousness of God. You you, you don't have to grow in righteousness if you have God's righteousness. Because how much more righteous does God need to get? But see, when you recognize that that's who you are, You'll begin to operate your life in a way that you would never in a million years sully your righteous life with the filth of sin and disobedience to God. Do I have any sneakerheads in the house? Any people? No, it's clearly not. Nobody really like, sneakerhead, what? I got my Wolverine work boots. Sneakerheads works in NB. Let me try this. Do we have any car heads in the house? People that love cars? Yeah, come on, somebody. What's your perfect car? I heard Mike say, come on, Mike, what's your perfect car, brother? What's, what's that one? If you, if you could just, if God could drop it down from heaven, what's that perfect car? Boom, come on, somebody. 427 Shelby Cobra, what year? You got to say something like, hand me duels under the head casket pipes and... Ribbon and tearing, go to zero to 360 and 900 degrees. and all. You got to say something like that. Come on, man, help me out. I can't preach this by myself. <laughs> Mike, you get that Shelby. You going to go off-roading with it down? You going to drive it through this creek down here? You're not. Why not? That ain't where it goes. Because there is an inherent value recognized upon the thing that causes you to say, I would never in a million years... Do that to that thing. If you could understand the inherent value on you is the righteousness of God through Christ's perfect work on the cross, you would never in your, you would look at your phone and say, how dare I ever look at that on my phone? How dare I ever say I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus? How can I ever do this to myself? Because that's what relationship does. Romans 10, 3 and 4 says this, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God, that righteousness that comes by faith, Paul says in Philippians 3, 9. And Romans 1, 17 actually says it's from faith to faith. That means it's a process. Look, enjoy the process. Like you might not be there yet or where you want to be. Can you just enjoy the process? All-powerful God chose to take six days to create everything. You know why? He didn't have to. He chose to because he likes the process. Enjoy the process. It says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God that comes by faith and is from faith to faith and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. These are the Jewish people. These are the patriarchs. They had the promises, Paul says. They saw God in the desert. The Pharisees saw Jesus. I want you to think about this. You, you think you're, you're, you're holy enough? Look, the Pharisees thought they were holy enough too. And they missed Jesus. Because they loved the rules more than they loved the ruler. The second thing that this man did that kept him from following Jesus. 
He rejected the look of love. I know some of you guys, especially out here, half the room's packing. You, you got them Wolverine work boots on. Some of you might have that Shelby GT 360 F-150 turbo-powered dually <laughs> overhead cam out in the... Come on. This is Tim the Toolman Taylor country. Rawr, 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 rawr. Come on. So you hear something like, he rejected God's look of love, and you're like, weird. <laughs> so, I don't want to say it, but I should, but I should. I'll, I'll, I'll dress it up. That's so effeminate. But you wouldn't have said effeminate. You'd have said something that began with an LGBTQ or an F. But see, and this is, this is why I think so many men never, you'll see women, they're worshiping, they're praying, they're, they're going. And guys, you know what? Because we reject God's look of love because it's weird. It's weird. But you know who didn't reject God's look of love? David. His name actually means beloved. David, David wrote songs. Played his harp with his lammies. <laughs> but David also killed his ten thousands. You know, David had an opportunity to marry the king of Israel, Saul's daughter, and the bride price for Saul's daughter was, I believe, Pastor Gavin can correct me, a hundred Philistine foreskins. Now, I, I, I don't want to picture that. Like, can you imagine a scene at the end of Braveheart, drenched in blood, ah, and then you're going around and collecting? Like, come on. Come on. But it's in the, see, you got to think about the Bible. It's in the Bible. Some of you are like, I can't believe he said that. Don't, don't read the book. There's stuff in there that you don't want to know. But David was a warrior. David was a stronger man than, dare I say, any man in this room. David was more battle-hardened, battle-ready, straight killer. Gangsters followed David. But David accepted and embraced the look of God's love because he knew that it was only that look that could change him into the image of Almighty God. That's why he was victorious in battle. That's why he was a great king. That's why the ladies loved David because he was ruddy and handsome just like Jared. Mary said, oh, he's so ruddy. Second <laughs> Corinthians chapter three, verse 18. And we too with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are transformed into the same image. You want to look more like Jesus? You want to act more like Jesus? You want to do the things that Jesus did? You want to love like Jesus loved? Heal like Jesus healed? Provide like Jesus provided? Then you've got to look at him with an unveiled face. The veil represents the law, the rules. Get them out of the way and stare at Jesus and let Jesus stare back at you because this rich young ruler's problem wasn't that Jesus didn't love him. His problem was that he didn't love Jesus. 
The Bible says that David was the apple of God's eye. I believe that that's a promise for each and every one of us, each and every human being. See, and I love that phrase because it's from the Hebrew in the Bible. And the Hebrew word literally means the little man of the eye. That's what it means. And it comes from that phrase because when you get closer, the little man of the eye is you being able to see your reflection in the eye of the person who's staring at you. How many of you, even with your own spouse, struggle to hold a face-to-face glance long enough to see yourself in their eye without feeling weird? Can I encourage you, push past the weirdness because Jesus' ultimate aim is relationship and he wants you to see yourself in him. He rejected God's look of love. And the last thing... I'm going to have Marie come on up. So many more things I could say, but I want to be mindful of the time. Is he, he refused to prioritize the one thing. Do you remember that? Jesus said, one thing you lack. And then he tells him like four things. You ever feel like, like Jesus says, one thing you lack, and then he gives you like a, a list, and you got to figure out which one is the one thing? All day. That's my life. Okay, which one is it, Jesus? He says, go, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come, follow me. Well, it can't be the selling or the giving because that's actually subtracting. And if you lack something, that means you need to add. So it couldn't be those. But the one thing that he lacked was the last thing that Jesus said, the follow me. And see, to our American ears, we just hear that, come follow me, make you fishers of men. But but that was actually the rabbinical invitation to discipleship. And every good Jewish boy, because girls weren't, they were exempted, they couldn't have this. Every good Jewish boy longed to hear a rabbi come and say, follow me. Because that meant that there was something in you that they wanted to pull out of you and they wanted to add something to your life. They wanted to, because there was no higher thing you could be in that day than to be a rabbi, be a teacher, to be a a, a scholar of the law, of God's law, to serve God. And, And so every good Jewish boy wanted to hear, come follow me. See, and the amazing thing about that invitation to discipleship is that in that culture, come and follow me didn't just mean, hey, come to that place where, where my, my students gather once a week. It didn't just mean, oh, hey, you know, uh, uh, make sure you try to make, you know, like 10 or 12 of your connection groups in a semester. It meant drop everything that you're doing, come and not just follow me where I go, but even in certain rabbinical schools, the disciples would actually mimic the motions of their rabbi. Now, I could just picture myself being a rabbi and some people following me. I'd start doing stuff like just to mess with them, just to see if they're watching. But see, that's what Jesus was inviting this man to. Some scholars actually believe, because you can check the New Testament, this offer to follow Jesus was only offered to the 12 and one other nameless person. Some scholars believe that this man could have been Judas's replacement. 
But in Acts chapter 1, they had to roll dice to fill that spot because this man said no to Jesus. See, and there's something amazing about the apostles' names. You see it in Revelation chapter 21, verse 7, that when John goes and he sees the vision of heaven, on the foundations of the wall around the city are the names of the twelve. All that my name could be written in heaven, etched in the golden stone of the foundations of heaven. But this man valued earthly gold over heavenly gold, and he said no. Refuse to prioritize the one thing. You know, the best way to mimic your master is to never take your eyes off him. To embrace not just the look of love, but to keep your eyes so fixed upon him that no matter what he does, you're ready to do it. You, you know why that's powerful? Because that's how Jesus operated. In John 5, 19, he says, I only do what I see the Father do. And I've just been seeing this. I've been reading through John. And I noticed that right after that, he says, he says and I'll do greater things so that you might marvel. And then it hit me like a ton of bricks in John chapter 14. When Jesus tells Philip, you'll do greater things. He says that, he says, because I'm going to the Father. And the indication was that even though I leave the earthly sphere, keep your eyes on me as I kept my eyes on him. And you will do the greater things, but you've got to keep your eyes on me. You've got to keep in relationship with me. But you have to prioritize that one thing. Mary did it in Luke chapter 10, sitting at his feet, staring at his face, hanging on every word that he said. Luke chapter 10, 38 through 42, Jesus says, she's chosen the best thing, the only thing that's necessary. And he said that to someone who was wearing themselves out serving him. And she was mad because Mary wasn't doing it. And there's some of you right now, I do all this, I do all that. And they're just sitting there, sitting at his feet, staring at his face, listening to his word. Well, can I, can I say this? I, I will dare to say this. Mary's willingness to do that, Mary's willingness to adopt that posture of sitting and staring, Mary's willingness to prioritize the one thing is what prompted her and led her to do the greatest act of service ever known to Jesus. And you say, well, what is that? Well, fast forward to the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus is at the home of Mary's brother, Lazarus. And he's sitting down and they just finished a meal. And Mary, unprompted, unbeknownst to anyone else, she goes up and she goes, I presume, to her room or her space, wherever, and she gets this alabaster jar full of spikenard perfume that the perfume itself was worth a year's wages. And the jar itself was just as valuable. Now, she could have taken that because anybody that's ever had very potent perfume, you, you can just, you, you just take the little, like, like, like you take the little back in the day. I don't, because now they got the spritzer, but you take the little top off and you do a little. That'll keep you for the day. Some of y'all that don't keep you long enough for the day, but. <laughs> but she didn't just take the lid off and put a few drops on Jesus. She broke the neck of the bottle. 
she irrevocably destroyed the vessel because she understood that the vessel had no importance. It was what was in the vessel that was important. And since she wasn't intending to keep any of what was in the vessel, she didn't need the vessel anymore. Since you're not intending to keep this vessel according to 2 Corinthians 4, why don't you break it open and pour out what's in it? Because what is in you is Christ and that's what the world needs. And she poured it all over Jesus head to foot and the disciples were indignant. We could have sold that and served people. You know how many food banks we could have did with that, Jesus? Jesus said, you'll always have stuff to do. But she did this not knowing that she did it for my burial. And this is the kicker. This is how I know it's the most important act of service ever offered to Jesus. Because this is what Jesus says. Because of what she's done, her name will be mentioned everywhere the gospel is preached. I'd say that's a sight more important than Billy Graham filling stadiums. It's a sight more important than the students that have given themselves to the one thing in Asbury. They prioritize the one thing. So my question for you today is this, and I've gone over, I'm sorry. Just tell Pastor Rick it was really good so he doesn't get that mad at me. What's keeping you from following Jesus? Is it your desire to be self-righteous? Is it your love for the rules? You know, some of the most rule-keeping, holy Christians I know are some of the most bitter jerks on planet Earth. And I'm not saying to just throw the rules out the window. I'm just saying that until you prioritize the one thing well, you'll never be able to truly keep the rules anyway. Is it your unwillingness to receive or reciprocate the look of love? Not just allow him to stare at you with eyes that burn like fire so that it can pierce and purge any darkness and decay in you but to stare back in until you see yourself in his eyes? Or is it your unwillingness to prioritize the one thing? David, I talked about him in in Psalm 27, verse four, David says this one thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, why? so that I can gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. Eternal life is found in only one place and it's only found in Jesus. And some of you might be sitting there and saying, well, pastor, I followed Jesus my whole life. Then my question, and this is not me trying to be a jerk, but this is just me asking an honest question. Why don't you look more like him? I followed Jesus for over half of my life now, and I do not nearly look as much like Jesus as I would not just want to look, but as the world needs me to look. Because it's not about me looking good in front of people. It's about Jesus looking good in front of the world. See, this is a thought that hit me, and I want to share this with you. Our no to Jesus might be the most destructive force on the planet. Our no to following him, to going deeper with him, our no to Jesus might be the most destructive force on the planet. Why? Because sin is a no to God. 
And it was Adam's no in the garden that created this messed up world that we live in. But there's another reality. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20 says this, that in God, it's not yes and no, but it's always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. And that is why through him, we utter our amen to God for his glory. Because here's the thing, the promises of God can't be attained or released in our life with a no from us. God's plan for our lives, God plans for the cosmos, for the world, hinge on the yes of his people. So right now, as we get ready to shift, Jared and Mary are going to come up in a moment, but I want to do this. Is there anyone here right now that needs to say yes to Jesus? You need to say yes to the look of love. You need to say yes to the one thing, the come and follow him. You need to say yes. Is there anybody here who doesn't have a time or a day where you made Jesus the forgiver of your past and the leader to your future. If that's you, I just want you to raise your hand. And right now, by raising your hand, I'm saying yes to Jesus. For the first time, I'm saying yes to Jesus. Now, maybe you're here and you've known Jesus, but you need to go a little bit deeper. There's some things you must decrease that he might increase, John 3.30. And if you're here today and you say, you know what? I need to do better with saying yes to God. Then I want you to just take a moment and begin to let those things flood your mind. What needs to go to help me follow Jesus more? Do I need to prioritize my schedule better? Do I watch too much TV and not enough Him? Do I read too much Facebook and not enough Bible? Do I talk too much with people and not enough Him? Do my finances need to be reprioritized? Do I need to get in that group or get on that team? Because you say, oh, well, those are just church things. No, that's how we spend face-to-face time with Jesus because you will find Jesus where two or three are gathered. So whatever that is, I pray that you right now, you just take a moment and and covenant with him. I'm going to give this to you. And as you do that, I'm going to invite Jared and Mary to come. And I thank you for your time. Appreciate getting to be with you. I love you guys so much. Amen. Well, we're going to continue. Thank you so much. Give Pastor John another hand. I love Pastor John, man. Good to have you here. We love you. We appreciate you and your service to the Lord. Man. Man. I want to get sit and look at his face. How about you guys? Let's move. Jesus. We're going to continue our worship experience this morning by the receiving of our tithes and offerings. And I want to first and foremost actually thank you all. Last week we took up an offering actually for aid and relief in Turkey. Um, And thank you so much. We were able to send out over $5,000 to the uh, people of Turkey, the missionaries, the pastors, and the leaders that are out there right now spreading the gospel, providing practical aid and relief. So thank you so much for your giving. And I also want to say there's another opportunity that because of your One Vision campaign offering that you guys so generously, consistently give to, we're able to purchase a new vehicle for Wesley and Katie Sanchez over in Guatemala. You guys make uh, Wesley and Katie actually a few weeks back 
uh, Wesley made an appearance here and we were able to buy a vehicle for them to able to go out to different villages and regions out in the mountains to reach on reach people out in the mountains there and actually Mary and myself and a team from Bridge City are going to Guatemala in June and we were so so excited for that so we'll let you know how the ride is the, with, the, with the money that you guys were able to give so I'm super excited and stoked for that but you know, I just, I just pray above all as, as Pastor John was preaching that we keep this open heart of yes to God, that there's nothing that's off the table. God, all this is yours, including my time, my talents, my attention, but also my finances. That's my prayer for me. And I pray that that would be the same heart that we cultivate as a people for God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much, Lord, just for your generosity. I thank you for your love, that you first loved us, that you first gave all for us. You gave your one and only son. Lord, we thank you that we get to reflect you, that we get to behold you, and we get to give back to you. Just, as, just a small amount of what you've given us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you're so gracious, you're so kind, you're so generous to us. We pray, Lord, that you continue to just uh, multiply and expand your kingdom, Lord, as a result of us giving unto you what's rightfully yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, hey, if you're new here, we are so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you decided to spend part of your Sunday with us. When you came in, you should have received a